Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. On today's episode of the podcast, Monique and I are going to be talking about um, savant abilities, splinter skills, hyperlexia, and giftedness. So we're going to break the episode down into two parts today. In the first half, we're going to be chatting about the skills that are really heightened abilities within someone's cognitive profile. So something that is not consistent with the rest of their cognitive profile or is really significantly ahead of what would be expected for age. So these are things like hyperlexia, splinter skills, and the savant abilities. And then in the second half of the episode today, we're going to break down what giftedness is. So giftedness in comparison to those kind of individual unique exceptional abilities is a cognitive profile that is quite uh, even, I guess, where there's really high ability, but it's across multiple domains. So as we know, uh, we really like to break down the definitions and the meanings of these technical terms like savant. So savant means knowledgeable person, and it was derived from the French word savoir, meaning to know. And apologies if I pronounce that wrong because I'm not French. (laughs) (laughs) So savant uh, abilities go beyond talent or extreme knowledge and they are prodigy-like skills in a specific area. I think it's important to know that not everyone who has a savant level of ability or skill in a certain area is necessarily autistic. There are non-autistic savants out there. However, it is something that is associated with being on the autism spectrum uh, and the estimates of prevalence of being an autistic savant uh, do vary a lot. Some sources say up to 10% of autistic people uh, also have savant abilities. So the first mention of savant syndrome was in a scientific paper in a German psychology journal in 1783. uh, And it was like a case study of someone with calculating abilities and extraordinary memory. But the first specific description of savant syndrome took place in London in 1887 at a medical lecture. So there are different areas that savant skills tend to fall into. The first is maths. So a savant may be a prodigy in mathematics and have the ability to calculate extremely complex problems without any pencil or paper or calculators. The other area is art. So a person may have the ability to recreate a scene with perfect precision straight from memory 
um, or create artistic masterpieces. And a great example of a savant with that ability is the artist Stephen Wiltshire. So he's a well-known autistic artist who draws hyper-detailed cityscapes from memory and he has his own art gallery in London. Uh, Another area is music. A person with savant ability in this area may be able to sing with perfect pitch, play an instrument with extreme talent, or play or recognize music by ear just from hearing it once. There's also calendar calculation. So being able to calculate the day or week of the month or year from any given point of time. Yeah, this is one that's so wild and one that I've actually uh, seen someone be able to do. Um, You just tell them like what date, any date, you know, 5th of December, 1915. (laughs) Um, And they can tell you, oh, that's this day immediately without any kind of um, thought, processing, anything like that. So it's pretty wild. Another area of savant skill can be spatial or mechanical skills. So having the ability to put together complex puzzles, lightning fast, uh, hitting golf balls in the exact same spot every time, reading a map extremely well, or calculating distance or height without measurement. And often extraordinary memory can accompany uh, someone with savant skills. Uh, Research has also found that synesthesia, which we talked about in an episode on season two, does occur at higher levels among autistic individuals with savant skills. And the research also uh, has shown that intelligence doesn't necessarily come into whether you are more likely to have savant skills or not. Mm, Yeah, because I think, you know, originally when uh, the savant syndrome was first identified, it was really thought that a savant ability could only be the case if you had intellectual difficulties. So people who had lower intellectual ability and it was thought of to be this, you know, amazing, incredible uh, skill that was completely outside that person's abilities. And that's definitely, you know, can be the case. But actually it's possible for people of all intellectual abilities to have savant skills because it really just means an extremely exceptional or prodigious uh, ability or skill in a certain area. So I think for people who are of higher intelligence, it's maybe less noticeable because it feels like, okay, well, maybe this is just part of your skill set. But what differentiates it is how extreme the ability or skill is. Yeah, something else that's interesting is that there hasn't really been a lot of mention of female savants as well throughout history. So they haven't been as well recognized or talked about. So Monique, you're telling me that women haven't been as well recognized Mm. and talked about throughout history? This is mind-blowing. Yeah, funny that. (laughs) Sarcasm alert. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So something that can sometimes be mistaken for a savant ability or I guess kind of lumped into the same category is splinter skills. And this is something that's used to describe abilities or skills uh, that typically autistic children have that are 
above or in excess of, of what would be expected given that individual's uh, general intellectual or cognitive ability. And so same with savant abilities, this can be the case regardless of, you know, what overall intelligence you have. Um, so splinter skills are similar, I guess, in a sense for savant abilities, but they're less extreme. So a lot of autistic individuals uh, do have splinter skills. So areas where they are very good at certain things, find certain things very easy, um, certain things are very intuitive, that is outside the range of, you know, their general intellectual ability. Um, and one splinter skill in particular is hyperlexia. We'll define hyperlexia in a moment, but it's essentially really strong reading ability. It is a really strong ability that we often see in autistic individuals. Um, and I think some researchers even found that 84% of hyperlexics are on the spectrum. So you can be hyperlexic and not on the spectrum, but it's much more likely that you are. So just to define hyperlexia, it's essentially the ability to decode written language with unusual ease. So in essence, we can sort of think about it as the opposite of dyslexia or, um, you know, a different kind of reading pattern to a dyslexic. So lexia coming from lexicon, word, so hyper versus dis. So with hyperlexics, um, essentially what's happening is they are taking a very specific route to reading in the brain when they're first learning to read. So when we think about how our brain learns to read, we know that reading isn't actually an innate ability, right? It, it's a human invention, writing, words, all of that. Um, we've invented that kind of system of reading and writing. So that means that there isn't an area of the brain that's our reading area of the brain like there is for different aspects of language and communication. Those things are innate abilities. So essentially that means that to read, our brain is integrating multiple different areas of the brain across multiple different networks. So reading involves a couple things. The first thing is the ability to actually recognize writing as language. Um, then we need to make grapheme phoneme connections. So grapheme being letters, writing like the written word, phonemes being the sounds involved in words. So making the letter sound connection. So a C is a K sound or so frustratingly in English, sometimes a S sound. Um, so, you know, we need to make those grapheme phoneme connections. Um, we need to store irregular grapheme rules in memory. So that's like the C. Sometimes it's a hard C sound. Sometimes it's a soft C and then recognize them in writing. And then we need to be able to actually link the word to its meaning. So that's our comprehension. That's the language component, you know, oh, I've heard this word before. I know what this word means and I can comprehend and understand this word. So for people who are expert readers, which just means people who can read fluently, so most adult readers, um, all of those things happen within a microsecond, right? They happen really quickly. You look at a word on a page, you immediately, it's transformed to meaning. And the reason that that's so quick in expert readers is actually because expert readers have stopped using what's called a phonological decoding strategy for reading and they just recognize the word. So expert readers have an incredibly large sight word bank, meaning that most words are stored away in memory so that we can just recognize the look of them and know that that word makes that sound is connected to that meaning. 
when we're learning to read, and expert readers can still use this strategy if you come across an unknown word, this is when you're using a phonological decoding strategy. So this is where the code, so to speak, of the letter sound connections is really important because you're basically decoding each word. It's like a code breaking process. And so you're sounding out each word and then you're putting together those sounds and then you're trying to link that to meaning. So for most readers, the development of their mechanical reading skills, so their decoding reading skills, um, and their language ability, so their comprehension ability, their ability to understand words in context, etc., develops kind of consistently. So those two things develop together um, and we see this kind of back and forth pattern of language ability, reading ability, and they kind of go up together. For hyperlexics though, it actually tends to bypass that language processing stage at an early age and it's relying much more on the perceptual visual imagery and sort of right brain processes of reading a word. Um, So when we think about the language uh, route, that's more of a left brain process. And the reason that that can take a little bit longer to develop in our traditional readers is because the left side of our brain does take a bit longer to develop when we're thinking very early childhood. Um, in really early childhood, the right side of our brain is what's kind of calling the shots most times. It holds our sort of feeling, perceptual, imagery-based skills. So for hyperlexics, they're actually not reliant on the development of their left side of their brain, their kind of language skills, language ability. And so they're really learning to read just by the visual imagery, visual perception of the word. Um, And hyperlexia is typically accompanied by a fixed sort of interest in letters and numbers at a really early age. And it's interesting because we can actually also see, we often also see really highly developed maths in the early grades for hyperlexics, because essentially early maths is just another language, right? It's code breaking. So it has kind of its own grammar rules, uh, patterns, etc. And we know that those kind of really strong phonological processing skills, so breaking down words into their speech sounds, that code breaking that we talked about earlier, is strongly linked to early math skills. Um, and children who are hyperlexics are often hyperlexic in multiple languages, maths at that point just being another language. I think that's... Uh quite interesting about the whole like interest in letters because uh my mom actually told me that when I was a baby she would like find me in my cot like looking at books and studying at books studying like the pages of those like wooden flip books like obsessively (laughs) so like I've been an obsessive reader like ever since I was really young loved reading loved books and I was reading like quite well above my age range so I would be using all of these words that I'd I'd never really heard people actually say out loud like the word subtle but I would say it subtle because that how is how I that is how I decoded it because I'd never heard you know anyone model uh, yeah like that word by saying it out loud yeah absolutely that's a really good example because you know if you are just code breaking that word that is how you say it subtle right that's a really good um, application of phonetic decoding skills Um, and this is where for expert readers so once we become really fluent readers um, this is where that application of multiple routes to reading is really important 
where we store those kind of irregular code rules um, in our mental sight word bank, code bank, but we can actually only know that that's the case if we've been exposed to language in context, if we know how that word is, you know, supposed to sound. Um, so it's interesting. I think that's a great example. Yeah, unfortunately, it meant though I got teased in the later years in high school because I would pronounce, I guess, these different words wrong. So it's really important to be aware that hyperlexic kids that are of average or above average intelligence will probably find the early grades at school quite easy because a lot of the early grades are about teaching reading, right? And teaching those kind of basic math skills. And so for these kids, they already kind of get what they're being taught. They don't really need to be taught ways to break those codes because that's just intuitive for them. Um, And so this means that they can then kind of tune out and disengage only actually to find that by about grades four and five, they've actually missed a lot of content and a lot of foundational conceptual topics. Um, And then suddenly school becomes really hard right? Because school is based on cumulative learning. This topic is based on knowledge of the previous topic, is based on the previous topic, etc. And so another issue with this is that we know that reading ability is massively moralized in our society and put on a pedestal. Um, You know, this idea that, oh, if you're a good reader, you're automatically really smart, rather than just seeing reading as one ability that we can be, you know, find easy or find hard. And so what happens is these kids often are labeled as really smart and they internalize that and that becomes part of their core identity. And they feel like, oh, I don't even have to try at school. I'm so smart. And that becomes something that they center their sense of self around. And then the problem with that is when they get to later grades and they do have to try or there's anything in life that requires a little bit of effort or they don't immediately get, which is true for everyone regardless of what your intelligence is or who you are, we all have things that we've got to put effort into. This becomes actually a really distressing point of identity crisis for these kids because they think, oh my God, if I'm not immediately good at this, that means I'm not smart. That means I'm no one. So we get disengagement from school and we can get significant identity issues in later primary and high school when, you know, they can't just get everything. So to try and prevent that trajectory, what we really want to do is in the early years, firstly, outside of school, we want to have lots of opportunities for these kids to be challenged. So to do things that maybe don't come supernaturally to them, that they do need to put a little bit of effort into, that they do need to work a little bit hard at. School is easy for these kids in the early grades. It's a piece of cake. So they need that challenge. It's almost like the opposite of kids who find um, the early grades of school really difficult. They need to be doing things outside of school that are easy. We all need to have that balance of some things that are just, oh my God, this is requires zero thought for me. Um, so easy. I'm really good at this. And other things that we're like, huh, okay, this is a little bit challenging. So having that opportunity to be challenged is really important because then that allows these kids to develop a memory of, okay, cool. So it's actually okay. If I don't know something immediately, I can get there. 
if I, you know, work at it and put in effort and etc. Um, so that's kind of outside of school. Inside of school, uh, what can really help is having uh, extension programs or having special interest projects that these kids can pursue. Um, and with the special interest projects, it's actually really important too that the extension work isn't just more of the classroom work because that's boring. And then it's kind of like, well, I'm not actually going to finish my required work because I know once I finish, my teacher will just give me another sheet to do. The extension projects need to be something that's actually interesting and challenging and motivating to engage. So I created my own extension program by reading the dictionary, the Theosaurus and the Bible in class, because they were the only things that we were allowed to read in class that were considered educational. Do you mean Thesaurus, Monique? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's the hyperlexia again. <laughs> Uh, Monique, you and I were talking before we started recording today about, you know, reading in class and what can that be a sign of and what things can drive reading in class, um, you know, like outside of what you're supposed to be reading. Um, and, you know, I was saying like, oh, you know, I think like a lot of people read in class for various different reasons. And then you were like, well, I read the dictionary and I'm like, well, okay, maybe that's more diagnostic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hello, listeners. We have a request. We want to hear your questions. In our last episode for the season, Michelle and I will be answering listener questions. So if there's anything that you're burning to ask or that you feel you want more information on, Email us at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Get your questions in by November 7th and tune in to our last episode of the season to hear them answered. Brains can get very noisy. I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like An Evening in Jasmine's Garden, Merida's Mystical Scottish Forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like Rolling Thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash neuro for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library.
That's calm.com forward slash neuro. So we're going to move on to chatting about giftedness now. And as we flagged at the start of the episode today, unlike these sort of splinter skills, savant abilities, giftedness is really quite a consistent cognitive profile where pretty much all of someone's individual unique skills, abilities are well above what would be expected for their developmental stage. So in a neurodivergent cognitive profile, um, so thinking, you know, autistic, ADHD in particular, we often see quite an uneven profile, more so in autism. Um, We can see an uneven profile in ADHD, but it tends to be less pronounced and usually a fairly consistent pattern of weakness in information management skills. But in a gifted cognitive profile, uh, we pretty much are seeing every skill and ability um, at the very high range of the distribution of skills and abilities. We might see some things that are a little bit lower, so some like strengths and weaknesses in that profile, but it's fairly consistent. So whereas in a autistic ADHD cognitive profile, we see that uh, resources have sort of been distributed differently or unevenly across different areas of thinking in a gifted cognitive profile there's just more resources <laughs> and they've been distributed quite evenly but there's a lot of them so i think you know it's important to flag as well that being intellectually gifted means that you're actually at the top two percent so 98th percentile or above um, for your age group it's the opposite of having an intellectual disability which means that you're in the bottom two percent for intellectual ability for your age group So giftedness is actually, in a sense, a neurodiversity in and of itself, um, given how rare it is. Only 2% of people in the population will meet criteria for intellectual giftedness. So we tend to see a particular profile in individuals who are gifted, um, and this can look like or mimic Uh, an autistic profile, especially in the earlier years, but there are some differences that distinguish the two. So for example, if we're thinking about memory um, and learning skills, someone on the spectrum might have absolutely incredible memory, knowledge, ability to retain information around particular topics of interest, whereas someone who's gifted will have a really broad, generalized knowledge, ability, memory across multiple areas. Um, And the kind of form that that knowledge takes is also a little bit different. In an autistic profile, it has more of that information collecting um, vibe to it. So it's sort of like, I'm trying to find out all the information I can about this. Um, And then, you know, as you've said before, Monique, distribute it like little treats to the people that I like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love that example. Um, Whereas for someone who's gifted, it's more of that kind of intellectual curiosity around how things work, um, finding out connections between things, thinking about things from a big picture sense as well as a detail sense and having a really innate ability to do both in the sense so, you know, understand what the overarching conceptual themes or ideas are with things and then have a really good knowledge and understanding of how do all the individual elements fit into that and what are important elements versus non-important elements. So similarly with speech and language and communication, um, we might find that autistic individuals, particularly uh, younger kids, can often have a really advanced vocabulary um, and can often speak in a way that is much more formal um, and, you know, 
proper, I guess, than would be expected for their age. So they're sort of putting together sentences and constructing the way that they speak in a way that maybe is not typical or expected for a six-year-old. And in young kids on the spectrum, you know, that often gets such a good reaction from adults. They say, oh my God, you speak so well, you're so articulate. And the reason for that for autistic kids is often that scripting. This is how I've seen this particular idea be conveyed. And we're sort of following that script. Whereas for kids who are gifted, it tends to be less of that, um, you know, kind of proper construction of language and more just an extensively wide vocabulary and using words um, in context. They have a really good ability just to understand the implied meaning, what people are conveying, and they're linking together that kind of um, neurotypical social communication knowledge with a really extensive knowledge of language and words and what the concept that are being conveyed are. And then the last thing here that is often a bit of an overlap between giftedness and both ADHD and autism is uh, questioning things and compliance and behavioral stuff. So we can see quite a similar um, behavioral profile amongst ADHDers and people who are gifted in that ADHDers might not complete their schoolwork on time or they might not be engaging or, um, you know, they're doing all of those things that we know come out of difficulty with executive functioning. Someone who's gifted might also be showing those same behaviors, but it's not because they have executive functioning difficulties. Gifted people actually have quite good executive functioning. It's often because they either A, are not interested, B, don't see the point in it, or C, already actually know all the information that's being taught um, and they're kind of like, well, I don't need to actually do hand in all these drafts. I know that I can just hand in the final product and I understand it completely and fully and therefore I'm not going to go through, you know, the performance piece of showing you my working or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, I think also it can sometimes be, uh, you know, the why. Why should I do this? You need to explain fully why. And if it doesn't make sense to me or if it's not the most efficient way of doing something, like you're wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm not going to do it that way. I, I can see a more efficient way of, of doing it. Mm, absolutely. And this is where personality also comes into play too. And I think, you know, personality is such a good way to understand uh, the difference in how different things manifest across different neurotypes, right? So you could have a gifted person who is, for example, very low in agreeableness, (laughs) which is just a personality trait. Agreeableness is the tendency to say yes or no, to acquiesce, um, to do what's asked of you. A gifted person who's also low in agreeableness is always going to be questioning things, right? Why are we doing it that way? No, here's the other way that I think that we should do it. Whereas a gifted person who's high in agreeableness is probably thinking all of those thoughts inside their head, but they're like, ah, well, (laughs) I'll just do it because I was asked to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So giftedness is generally genetic. Um, So it can get passed down genetically in families. Um, And there are some brain differences or neurological differences associated with giftedness, um, such as mental hyperactivity, uh, because of the brain being uh, highly connected and having a really high speed of information transfer and processing. Uh, What can also occur is people who are gifted having increased sensory sensitivity 
hypersensitivity to their environment and all the details of the environment and also hyper excitability of the brain because of the speed of all those connections and associations being made uh, and then having emotional and sensory information overload. So with the emotional and sensory sensitivity It is a common thing that we see in the gifted profile, but not everybody who's gifted has those uh, hypersensitivities in those areas. The other thing we wanted to bring up today on the podcast was something called twice exceptionality. So the official definitions around twice exceptionality talk about individuals who have an exceptional ability who also have one or more disabilities. And that results in a unique set of circumstances where their exceptional ability may dominate and then hide their disabilities Uh, or their disabilities may dominate hiding their exceptional abilities. So each may end masking the other so that neither is recognized or addressed and supported. So when we're talking about twice exceptionality, uh, it's, it's usually individuals who have that level of giftedness with their intellectual abilities, and they also have a co-occurring neurodevelopmental difference, uh, such as autism, ADHD, dyslexia. And there are aspects uh, within society that make having those neurodevelopmental differences disabling or difficult. So getting an exact prevalence or like the amount of people who are twice exceptional is difficult because in the international literature, there are different estimates and the difficulty there is around accurately measuring giftedness in the actual real world population um, because like not everyone who's gifted is officially tested or recognized and then also pairing the giftedness or exceptional abilities with again rates of autism, ADHD, dyslexia that are accurately picked up and recognized and then combining the prevalence of both. Mm. So currently uh, the prevalence that we could find was around 6% of the population in the United States would be considered twice exceptional. And then within the Australian literature, we couldn't find a lot of research uh, pointing to prevalence in the Australian literature. And there was some research that uh, basically pointed out that the, the current research in this area is limited. With supports, it's interesting too that there are actually no mandated supports for giftedness in the school system in Australia whereas there are mandated supports for some kids with some disabilities in the school system in Australia. 
Yeah, and I think that is really relevant to these kids who are twice exceptional, um, so have who have really strong abilities in some areas and difficulties in other areas, particularly in the school system. In Australia, in the past, it's really only been autism. So if you have to have an autistic diagnosis, essentially, to be able to receive any form of regulated or mandated support in the school system. Um, there's been a super recent change, uh, including some more things like ADHD. So we're yet to see the outcomes of that, but that's a step in a good direction. But as you know, you were saying, Monique, I think for these kids who are twice exceptional, often, even if they do have an autism diagnosis and they the school receives funding to support them, etc., um, often because they're not the worst in the class, for instance, or, you know, they seem so smart in other areas or so capable in other areas, school can often be reluctant to actually provide them with the support they need. So a really a common practical example I see of this is really bright kids on the spectrum who had no problem in primary school and then they get to high school and the difficulty managing, you know, all the assignment load, um, overstimulation, the social emotional side of things um, becomes really intense and their mental health takes a massive toll. But school is saying, well, they're performing at or above average. So there's nothing that we need to support them with. And, you know, while I do understand that from a technical point of view, it's really failing these kids who then often end up burning out in grade 11 or 12 um, and then need multiple years after school to recover, not only physically nervous system wise, but just their sense of self and sense of identity too. Yeah, I think too, there's just not a lot of education and support for teachers in supporting twice exceptional students as well. Um, So I think there is a bit of a systemic issue in the education system around supporting uh, these kids. And then unfortunately, when you hit adulthood, it's all the same issues. So yes, you may be gifted in in some areas um, and have like a high intellectual ability, but you also still require supports um, in, into adulthood and then in adulthood and university, that's where a lot of those supports drop away and there really isn't much out there for adults who are 2E or twice exceptional. And I think, you know, it's it's kind of that understanding, that society-wide or lack of understanding that just because someone has, you know, certain abilities or skills in certain areas doesn't mean that they don't have other areas where they need more support. And, you know, the work environment is a good example of that. Um, Someone might be super incredibly competent at their job and like very good at what they do, Um, but they might have a whole host of sensory stuff that they need support with or need accommodations for. So, yeah, I agree. I think there's not a lot of understanding about the overlap between having high intellectual ability and then also, you know, having a neurodivergence that means that certain things are harder, certain environments are more difficult to navigate. The other issue with being twice exceptional um, is that a lot of times having that gifted ability in some areas means that you're not actually ending up being diagnosed with autism or ADHD until later on in life because your intellectual 
capacity has carried you through or that's all people see so that you don't actually receive those supports um, earlier on and then into adulthood and it can kind of mask um, the other neurodevelopmental differences that you have. Mm, Yeah. And, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, the difference between giftedness and ADHD, for example. Um, If you're gifted and ADHD, exactly as you were just saying, Monique, um, often you don't get an ADHD diagnosis because you might not be able to start your assignments until the night before, not because of, you know, giftedness and not wanting to and whatever, but because of executive function issues. But because you're really bright, you still get an A+. And so, you know, when you look at the uh, report cards of people like that, there's no issues in, you know, inverted commas because they're still performing really highly. So, yeah, I think that's a really common thing, particularly for the ADHD side of things because the giftedness can mask some of those executive function difficulties in particular. Yeah, and for people who received formal testing when they were young, when they were children, and then they've come out with a giftedness sort of label, but their other difficulties weren't ever picked up on, what can then happen is that can end up becoming a traumatic experience for them because all of a sudden there are these parental expectations, expectations from teachers in the classroom of, oh, wow, you're gifted, so now you have to achieve at this certain level and we have all of these expectations for you. And these kids may go into gifted and talented programs but then end up burning out or having a lot of difficulty in high school or university and feeling really bad about themselves because of, you know, quote, unquote, they haven't achieved to their level of intellectual capacity that they've been told their whole life they should be achieving. And then they have terrible self-worth and beating themselves up, blaming themselves like, why can't I do these things that I've been told that I should be able to do? And it ends up with a lot of, uh, you know, potentially causing a lot of anxiety and distress, depression, uh, and becoming a really negative experience and contributing to a really negative sense of self. Oh, yeah, completely. And I think a really important thing to mention when we talk about this topic of um, having an intellectual assessment really early in your development, so say in early primary school, that comes out with an incredibly high IQ. And as you said, Monique, you get that label of gifted and then all the expectations and things that come with that. For people who are neurodivergent and particularly people who are on the autism spectrum, It is actually not uncommon for your performance on intelligence tests to actually change drastically from when you were really young to when you're an adult. And this comes back to the difference in the developmental trajectory of neurotypical people versus neurodivergent people. So when it comes to intelligence tests, it's essentially measuring um, your development of your intellectual and cognitive abilities as relative to what would be expected for a neurotypical person of that age, right? So there's some flaws when we're using those measures to measure the intelligence of an autistic individual, which as we've flagged before, is someone who commonly has a really uneven 
cognitive profile, cognitive development. So when it comes to looking at early in life versus adulthood, when we assess kids really early, when they're, you know, six, seven, eight, um, or even younger, right? Often, if they're bright kids and they're on the spectrum, they perform really highly because what is being measured and assessed at that really early age are things that the autistic brain does very well. For adulthood and older adolescents, we're actually more measuring things like that gist thinking, that kind of big picture thinking, and also your ability to manage um, and process multiple sources of information at once. These are things that are a good measure of how a neurotypical person's cognitive abilities are developing and progressing because that's the pathway that the neurotypical uh, cognitive development takes. So putting all of that together, it's actually really not unusual that someone who was tested early on and identified as gifted would actually no longer meet criteria for being gifted if they were retested in their later adolescence or adulthood. And, you know, I think that knowing that can actually release you of that burden of, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing or the level that I'm supposed to be achieving at because what those tests are really just measuring is how close to the neurotypical ideal um, are you? In your early childhood, wow, you well surpassed it. But in adulthood, your thinking has diverged. So essentially, you know, intelligence tests are good enough, basically. What they're really good at is helping us identify where someone might need support um, or where there's dysfunction what's kind of below where we'd expect to see it, where do we need to implement some strategies, some support or some environmental modifications. But IQ tests are not the be-all and end-all. So what they're doing is they're measuring a very specific set of abilities. And, you know, even people who score very highly on IQ tests also have areas of weakness. So I think, you know, while it's lovely and fun to think of people as gifted and, you know, all the amazing abilities that come with that, that in and of itself doesn't mean that you've reached the pinnacle of humanity. (laughs) (laughs) Dang. So I think the other thing to say about the limits of, you know, IQ testing, cognitive testing, um, assessments as they stand is something that's really well known as a flaw in these tests. They're very culturally specific, meaning that um, getting a high score, particularly on the verbal aspects of these things, so like verbal reasoning, um, you know, verbal conceptual thinking, verbal knowledge is very highly dependent on having access to a Western education system. So we know that a really big problem in Australia, for instance, is a lot of the uh, cognitive testing that we use as standardised measures are actually not valid in really remote Indigenous communities because what we're measuring is not something that these you know, communities or groups of people have necessarily been exposed to. So it's a really important confounding factor in the validity of these tests. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to keep in mind the cultural context when doing any sort of testing um, to make sure that what you're testing is valid. Mm, well, exactly right. And I think, you know, this is where when you're administering these types of tests or you're interpreting these types of tests, it is actually so imperative that you understand the why of why did someone get that score? 
right? Um, for a lot of people, they got the score that they did because that's a measure of their ability or their, you know, cognitive capacity in that particular metric, but not always. Particularly, again, if it's culturally invalid, um, someone might have got the performance that they did because they um, have never been exposed to that information before. So when we're looking at scores on cognitive measures, um, it's not always a straightforward answer as to why someone got that score. And as you said, Monique, we really need to be ensuring that we're being culturally sensitive and understanding someone's performance within the context of their life experiences and their culture. Yeah, it's just calling for that critical evaluation, isn't it? Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.